Um, yeah, these are these are the kind of live questions. Um, and well, that depends on us, right? That depends on what we do. The responses of uh, of the um, uh, 60, 70, 80 people who are on this call here this afternoon will play a part in determining how that question plays out. And the ripples um, uh, out from those um, people um, going away and uh, and whatever, reading one of my books, reading one of Greta Thunberg's uh, books, deciding to do something dramatic with their wealth. Um, some people on this call probably have um, uh, a lot of money. Uh, I mean, you know, tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to spare uh, squirreled away in a bank account or in some property. Something like that can make an enormous disproportionate uh, um, difference. I'll give you an example. Um, one um, person provided uh, the majority of the of the early funding for Extinction uh, Rebellion. Uh, one person who gave um, a, a million pounds to Extinction Rebellion. Uh, and of course, most of us don't have a million pounds or a million uh, dollars, uh, but some people do. Uh, uh, another example, um, one person um, provided most of the seed funding for our incredible Green Party member of parliament in the United Kingdom, Caroline Lucas, who some of you will be aware of. You know, one of the really great parliamentarians in the world. She would probably not have been able to get elected in the first place if one person hadn't left their flat in the seaside town of Brighton to the Green Party. They left their flat in their will to the Green Party and that enabled the Green Party there to get enough funding for staff members to, um, uh, to um, get themselves into a position whereby at a couple of elections later, they got Caroline Lucas elected. And she's had a transformative effect on the British Parliament and to some extent on British politics. So I said earlier, it's not really about individuals, it's about what we do together. But what I'm doing with these examples is just bringing to your attention that, well, sometimes even just one person can make an incredible difference, let alone when we start to join up, when there's two people or five people or 10 people or 100 people or 10,000 people or 100 million people. And that's the kind of direction we need to be heading in, uh, doing something together, all pointing in the same kind of direction, even if what they're doing is very, very different things. So that is how I see the the, the coming period. Am I intellectually optimistic? Uh, no. But do I think that there is um, hope in action, in, in what we could choose to commit ourselves, to, to throw ourselves into, if we really allow ourselves to, uh, uh, to feel and work through our rage and our despair and so forth? Yes. Are there any countries or, or organizations in the world that, you're, that, uh, that you see are doing great things to solve the climate crisis? Mm. Yeah, so um, of course, some countries are doing better than others. Um, I'm not sure there's anyone who's doing enough yet, but let me give you a couple of examples of some really good stuff that's going on, which we should take um, inspiration from. Um, New Zealand, which did a tremendous job of um, uh, preventing deaths in the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, by the way. Um, they're, the, I think, the only country in the world which had uh, lower than average mortality during the COVID uh, uh, period. Um, New Zealand has, is, was also it's the same government, the Jacinda Ardern um, government, um, brought in um, a policy which moved New Zealand away from the pursuit of gross domestic product, so-called economic growth, right? The endless pursuit of economic growth, I spoke kind of obliquely in my lecture a couple of times uh, about um, underlying causes of the crisis. Surely one of them is the drive for endless uh, economic growth. Uh, it's crazy, it has to come to an end. 
Um, well, New Zealand are trying to encourage that process along. Uh, they have substituted alternative measures of genuine well-being for the pursuit of, uh, of GDP. And that's a very exciting precedent. There's one or two other countries that have done the same, such as Bhutan, a tiny kingdom in the Himalayas. Um, a very different example is Costa Rica. Uh, Costa Rica is inspirational in so many ways, uh, most crucially, perhaps in the current context, because excuse me, of the way in which uh, Costa Rica uh, has done an incredible job of restoring its biodiversity. Enormous um, semi-natural reforestation, rewilding, um, uh, which has um, uh, put nature in a far better position uh, in Costa Rica than it was um, a generation ago. Uh, in countries like ours, uh, the UK or the USA, um, we really ought to reflect upon this because we're actually quite um, nature denuded countries across most of our uh, uh, territory. It's shocking to when one realizes um, how much nature we've lost compared to what was the case a hundred years ago, let alone a thousand um, uh, years ago. So Costa Rica is a very inspiring example of what's possible vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, biodiversity. The European Union has made some good strides forward vis-a-vis uh, climate. Um, they've done some good stuff vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, renewable energy, uh, for example, although there are some um, wrinkles there. Um, the EU has been far too pro-biofuels uh, and biomass, which mostly is actually quite um, environmentally damaging and dangerous, we now realise, if it's done monoculturally, if it's done on a large, on a large scale. But compared to um, the US or the UK, uh, the EU on balance has done quite well in relation to uh, climate type stuff. So uh, there is no country which has made it, um, but there are countries we could and should take inspiration uh, uh, from. Um, but as I've said earlier, really for many of us on this call, it's gonna be less about um, things at the country level and more about what we can do at the sort of intermediate level, at the level of civic society at the level of being part with others uh, in change um, in our workplaces, in our communities and so forth. Okay, I wanna turn this over to one of our audience members. David, go ahead and please state your name, where you're from and ask your question. Yes, my name is David. I'm from the Washington DC area and I appreciate you letting me uh, participate and I appreciate the presentation. Anyway, it's not. I don't have so many, so much questions, but just some comments that I think might be helpful. And that is one is given the climate crisis and other crises that are out there. I think for many people, either they are, their the way of dealing with it is to just get on with their lives and just ignore it, or they're like the deer in the headlights and they just are so overwhelmed that they can't respond to it. My always thought is the serenity prayer, which is figure out what you can do individually rather than trying to think you can change the whole world and use that as a basis for coping with what's going on. The other thing I think many people do is to outsource to environmental organizations, that is give money to environmental organizations who are doing a lot of good things to try to deal with the climate crisis, let alone other environmental problems. And I understand in the United States, they're trying to preserve 30% of all the land whether it's through indigenous um, Native Americans or through ranch land or other ways of dealing with it. The problem is agriculture, and I know that's been discussed on this uh, summit. 
Um, so anyway, those are some some other th some thoughts yeah. I have. I could go on and on and on, but um, I think the serenity prayer is is one of the main things that people can focus on. That is, focus on mm -hmm. what you can do rather than getting so overwhelmed that you do nothing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, David. I, I think I'm uh, in quite a lot of agreement with you. I think the serenity prayer is very useful uh, here. One slight modification I would make, uh, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is I think we need to focus not just on what we can do as individuals, but what we can do together. By together, I don't mean like as the whole human race, because that's usually not a level we can work at. But I mean something like what we can do as a group of neighbours or as a group of co-workers and so forth, building up uh, from there. But with that slight modification, I'm very much in agreement with you. I love the way you use the word outsource, which um, connected with what I was saying in my talk. And here's how I would put it in relation to what you said about people giving to environmental organizations. Of course, it's, it's better to give whatever, um, uh, $100 a year to the Sierra Club than not to give anything to anybody. Um, but the idea that, that lots of us giving $100 a year to the Sierra Club is going to be enough um, is becoming more and more risible, right? It's just, it's just, it just doesn't add up. And more and more people realize that, right? And that's the point. So the point is this kind of temptation to outsource is coming to an end. So the question is, what replaces it? When you start to give up on outsourcing, when you think, oh, you know, what if I can't trust the government to fix it? What if there is no tech fix? What if the environmentalists and the activists have not got this uh, completely covered? Then what? Ultimately, it comes back to you, right? It comes back to us working together and what are we going to do and how are we going to step up? And that's the point. That's the point of the Climate Majority Project. We need to step up and form a self-aware climate majority uh, in a way that has just started to happen and has not been the case uh, in the past. And when we do so, we will be deliberately overcoming this understandable but increasingly ineffective uh, temptation to, to outsource. Finally, in terms of the point about overwhelm, absolutely. Uh, yeah, people have been trying to ignore it. People have been feeling um, uh, overwhelmed, frozen, etc. cetera. Uh, again, that's the point, right? The point is those kinds of uh, difficult feelings, even feelings of overwhelm or feelings of despair or desperation, feelings of depression, um, climate depression, etc. Those feelings themselves need to be faced and need to be uh, reckoned with. Uh, and then you can only then can you start to overcome them. And a key part of the way you actually overcome them is by taking action of the kinds that we've been talking about. One place to go if people want to pursue this um, is to my teacher, uh, Joanna Macy, uh, in her um, work that reconnects, which is an incredible way of um, developing this kind of real active um, lived uh, mental health, the true mental health of being willing to face and feel one's um, eco grief uh, and climate anxiety uh, and so forth. The work that reconnects is easy to find online. There may well be uh, workshops or whatever that happen um, not too far away from where you live at some point uh, in the near future. Um, and yeah, what people need to understand is that the more they try to just um, turn away uh, or, or to take refuge in something, the worse it's going to get. I mean, the worse it's going to get literally out there in the world, but also ultimately the worse it's going to get for you. Because the, the truth is that just trying to turn away for forever and a day, it's going to get harder and harder. It's going to be less and less plausible. 
uh, it's going to be less and less satisfactory. I remember what I said towards the end of my lecture about, about the desperate energy involved in desperately trying to keep despair at arm's length. Yeah. What if we let all that go? And instead of using all that energy to try to keep things away and to, and to go like this, what if we actually turn and face uh, the trouble? Uh, what if we, we stay with it, uh, stay with ourselves, stay with each other? And what people discover when they do that is it's initially perhaps hard and there's some emotional discharge, but it's so much more satisfying and it's so much less exhausting. It is exhausting to ignore reality. It is exhausting to turn away from everything. It is exhausting to endlessly keep one's difficult feelings at arm's length. So I'm actually offering um, a form of uh, relief here, uh, if you will. And one final way to put this is that those of us who are really feeling it, those of us who are assailed by these uh, difficult dreams or whatever it might be, as I certainly have been, we're actually the lucky ones because we're going through the difficult part of the experience now while things are still relatively kind of together, um, things are going to get in a number of ways a lot harder for a long time to come. And some people are going to have a rude shock and a rude awakening into climate and ecological uh, reality under much more difficult circumstances uh, than we're in uh, right now. So if you're in the vanguard of experiencing some of this mental distress, um, take some comfort from the reality that you are one of the uh, lucky ones and take full advantage of that of that luck take full advantage of being part of the vanguard of full advantage of being um part of what is so far a relatively thin but increasing end of what will become a larger and larger wedge and i'm now using this this wedge metaphor not to talk about the climate crisis but to talk about our response to it right to talk about the emergence of this this self-aware climate majority so what aspects of climate change do you expect to to you know for the population to see first? You know, running out of fresh water, um, issues with land, the impacts on our our complex food supply system, mm. floods, wildfires. I mean, we're already seeing you know extended wildfires in in yes. California. You know that yes. season extended. What what are you what what are you expecting to kind of get progressively worse that we're going to see and it's going to become life as as we know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right now, there's quite a lot of bad wildfires in Canada. I mean, how ridiculous, right? Uh, it's it's only early May. It's it's springtime still. And we've got bad wildfires in uh, in Canada. Yeah, it's all of the things that you said, Mike. Um, I have particular concerns around the food system, and that means, of course, the water system at the same time. Um, our food system is out of control. It's a runaway uh, food system. A lot of it, a lot of the trouble, of course, is caused by uh, capitalist and corporate uh, uh, greed uh, and by a lack of concern for, for human health, let alone for animal welfare, uh, and a concern instead for um, short-term um, profit. Um, the reason why I'm so concerned about the food system and the and water uh, availability is very simple in final analysis. Uh, it's because um, without it, uh, we're nothing, uh, right? Although we can keep going for quite a while on meaning alone, uh, as I said earlier uh, in my lecture, but not obviously uh, indefinitely. Um, that is why I think one of the things which really makes sense to do is to engage uh, with others in building uh, local food resilience and local water resilience. Um, one aspect of that, one very simple aspect of that is water storage. Uh, one wants to have water storage systems, one wants to have uh, 
uh, systems for collecting the grey water that comes from one's um, house, like water, water from the bath, uh, for example. Um, and there are, I know, in some parts of the US, absolutely insane, um, uh, mad laws that ban one from doing that and, and try to force one from to try to force one to get all of one's laws from uh, water companies. Um, those are prime examples of laws that must be overturned, resisted or struck down, including where necessary by practical resistance. Because this is about our lives. This is about our safety uh, and our future. Um, so, yeah, I, I would encourage um, people strongly to, to look at um, food or water resilience um, almost as a, as a default um, as part of what one does. Although, as I said earlier, for some people, um, there will be other more important ways uh, in which they can direct their lives for the course, uh, for the cause of good in relation to this uh, crisis. For example, through uh, what wealth they may have or through their extended family or through their church or through their workplace. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and also, as I said earlier, to reiterate this really crucial uh, uh, point, if you are engaging in local resilience building, you might sometimes think something like, isn't this a bit selfish? Uh, isn't it a bit um, selfish of me to be looking after myself and looking after my family and uh, my neighbors even uh, in this kind of way? Um, there's an important sense in which, really, in which it really isn't selfish. Um, one obvious sense in which it's not selfish is it means you are becoming less of a burden potentially on others. But the, the really important sense I, I want to draw attention to again, um, as I described earlier, is the sense in which when you are engaging in physical or psychological resilience building, when you are engaging in community preparedness, you are engaging um, as a foreseeable byproduct of this uh, in helping to wake up everybody else. Uh, and that is, if you will, a community service. That is a sort of national service or, or social service. Um, and so that, that's a remarkable way in which um, the the endeavor which might for some people be quite selfish in initial motivation of building community resilience has a public good. It has a wide potential societal not on effect of people realizing, my goodness, we do need to get serious about tackling this more than emergency. So um, Michael Moore came out with a documentary um, not too long ago on the, the climate and how the a lot of the technologies that we're using, you know, that we're deploying in order to uh, prevent this, uh, this impending or ongoing climate crisis are actually contributing to it, such as, uh, such as um, mining for rare metals for the, uh, for the, um, the cell batteries. Yes. Or, uh, you know, for solar, uh, as well as um, you know how you know the destruction of, of natural habitats in that process, including these five hundred year old Yukon, you know things that the rare metals themselves are extremely toxic. Um, what what do you say to those types of things when we're when we're looking at strategies for the future? How do we take into account the the impact of those of those changes? And, and are these done in good faith, or are these actually? Um, are people just trying to profit off of, um, you know, the fix, if you will? Yeah, yeah. So this is a complicated uh, question. Um, you're talking about Michael Moore's film, uh, Planet of the Humans, right. um, which is, uh, it's worth a watch, but it needs to be taken with quite a big uh, pinch of salt 
for the benefit of those who are um, on the call, I'm going to attempt now to put into the chat a review I wrote of the film, which will explain in detail my response, and I'll try to speak to it more, more briefly. Yes, I've successfully managed to put that in the chat. Um, what we try to do uh, in our review is to give a kind of balanced, um, nuanced appraisal of the film and to bring out some of the ways in which the film was not as balanced and nuanced as it should have been. We think that the film um, and that Michael Moore raised some good questions about um, what is sometimes called bright green environmentalism. Um, it is a delusion, for example. It is indeed a delusion to think that we are going to be able to replace like for like all the fossil fuels that we're currently burning with genuinely renewable energies. Uh, as I said earlier, we need to be um, encouraging and co-creating an energy descent. We need to be using and wasting uh, a lot less uh, energy in the future. So as we reduce the amount of fossil fuels we, we use, we shouldn't just try to increase renewable energy at the same rate. We should increase it at a, at a, at a lower rate. Um, and use less energy as a whole. And one of the reasons for that is if we try to replace fossil fuel energy like for like with the same amount of renewable energy, it will be enormously damaging for uh, the places that get mined, including, for example, the deep sea floor. Um, so that is a, a, an essential uh, and important um, indicative uh, truth at the heart of the Michael Moore film, um, Planet of the Humans. But as uh, my colleague and I say in our review, which I just put in the chat, um, we think that there are a lot of problems with the Moore presentation. Some of his data is, uh, is out of date. Uh, some of, so there's too much kind of negativity uh, about some of what is happening uh, with, uh, with solar power, for example. Um, which can be uh, very positive and the, and the technology is continuing to uh, improve. So long story short, um, I think it is not true to say that what Michael Moore has done has sort of undermined the idea of a green transition. I think what is true to say is that he has, um, he and his colleagues have successfully raised some questions about how we'd undertake this transition. We shouldn't try to keep uh, an economy going at the same scale as our current economy, only renewably and energy, uh, energy uh, funded. We should be thinking not just about the humans with whom we share this planet, but the other beings and the ecosystems. Uh, as I said in my in my lecture, if we're not taking ecology just as seriously as climate, then we're not really paying uh, sufficient attention. And that's what we need to do. So, um where does animal agriculture and and in response environmental veganism fit into the climate majority strategy you know a lot of you know obviously if you know there's the uh, the 10 percent rule where if you eat just you know the plants that the animals eat you you know you get 100 percent. but then they if you eat the animals then you're only getting 10 percent of that original uh that original um uh food mm -hmm. So where does that fit into your strategies and personal accountability? Sure, yeah, and perhaps this is a, a, a good uh, question to, to end with because obviously it's a question that ties a lot of this all together, themes of mental health, uh, physical health, um, planetary stewardship. So let me seek to, to give you a fair answer. So in the Climate Majority Project, we do not have a kind of absolutist insistence on being uh, plant-based. But what we do think is that there is, as you've said, Michael, a strong case for um, the, 
the pendulum swinging far more towards being plant-based than it currently is. Uh, in particular, um, um, we need to, well, bring to an end um, as soon as possible, um, industrialized um, animal uh, agriculture. Uh, and we need to reduce uh, drastically the amount of, uh, of animal agriculture overall. Uh, and we need to reduce drastically the amount of industrialized agriculture overall. So in other words, one um, thing we want to suggest uh, is missing from some parts of the vegan movement is an awareness that um, industrialized uh, plant-based agriculture is still um, enormously harmful, including to non-human animals. Um, uh, for example, all the uh, rodents that are destroyed um, by uh, uh, the plowing of fields where uh, grains are, are harvested, even if those are harvested for uh, human consumption. Um, basically, what we want to encourage is, uh, is a nuanced, uh, sensitive, evidence-based um, debate here and a, and a precautionary attitude. Uh, we suspect that there may be a, a place um, for uh, continued use of some um, small-scale uh, mixed agriculture, that there's uh, probably a place, an important place for uh, animal uh, manures, for example, in terms of enrichment of, uh, of soils. Um, and we think that a kind of absolutist um, position of the kind that seems to have been argued for recently by my friend and colleague, uh, George Monbiot, um, is perhaps uh, not the most uh, helpful. But what is absolutely clearly needed is a drastic reduction um, in the burden which our runaway food system is uh, is placing uh, on the planet. And there should be room for a really kind of strong confluence of uh, human health, um, uh, animal health uh, and uh, and well-being uh, and, uh, and planetary uh, health. And that's certainly part of the the balance which uh, which we're hoping to to contribute towards. And uh, and I hope that that strikes a chord with uh, with everyone who out there out there who listens to this, who's probably trying to contribute to it too. Great, thank you. I think that is the perfect place to end this uh, this session. I, I really appreciate it. This information has been very uh, invaluable. Uh, before we and I'd like to open up the uh, the mics and let the audience thank you for uh, for all this information that you've provided us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks folks. Thank you. 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 Thank you.